0: Again, ties everything uh, together in Genesis 39 is the theme of, of suffering. But I want to put it a little bit uh, a different way. Uh, this chapter will teach us what does it really mean to be a success in, in God's eyes? Uh, is it the person over here who's who's living this life of peace and prosperity, or is it the person over here? Uh, that's going through a lot of adversity. You know, I'm often drawn back to the book of Job. The book of Job is um, just some great stuff in there. And if you go read the book of Job, Job's friends would say this to him. You had to do something wrong, Job. Didn't he? They kept saying it. Just admit it. You had to do something wrong. Why? Because you're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Everybody knows that if you do right, God blesses you. It's peace and prosperity. You must, that That's Job. His friends are just hammering on that theme over and over and over again. But what does it really mean to be a success in God's life? You see, we all want to succeed, right? But it's crucial that we know what the biblical definition of success is. If you don't, you're going to be like the guy that climbed the ladder of success and got to the top and found out it's leaning against the wrong wall, right? You better, when you start climbing the ladder of success, you better make sure... It's leaning against the the right wall. What we're going to find out in our passage today is that Joseph is faithful to God while he's in Potiphar's house. And I'll I'll call that because it sounds better. He's in the penthouse, right? He's there. He's working hard. God is blessing him. Everything is just, boy, wherever he puts his hand to, it just turns to gold. And and he's successful in all that he does. But we'll also see that... As a result of walking in faithfulness to God, as a result of that same righteousness, he ends up in in prison. So which is it? Does faithfulness to God put us in the penthouse, or does faithfulness to God put us in, in prison? You see, the fact is, it can be both. And there's many Christians today, especially here in America, that got this idea that serving God and walking in righteousness and being faithful is always going to bring you success and prosperity. But this chapter says no. That's not always true. In fact, if we could step outside of America, you'd see there's a lot of people in this world living faithful to God, walking in righteousness, and they're in prison. Whether it's an actual prison or whether it's a, a prison of strife and suffering and adversity. It doesn't always, but in America we've got this particular way that, that we think. You see, sometimes righteousness brings the penthouse of peace and prosperity, but sometimes righteousness brings prison of strife and, and even poverty. Both can be the results of righteousness. doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. doesn't mean that God's got an axe to grind with you or anything like that. God's got a plan for your life, and sometimes that, that plan involves peace and prosperity, and sometimes that, uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean you've necessarily done anything wrong. Now, again, I think this is a, a real particular way we tend to think here in America with the whole prosperity gospel and all that that's uh, engendered over the years. Um, and that needs to be challenged, and that needs to be changed, to be quite honest with you. And I can't think of a better place to challenge that way of thinking and change that way of thinking than, than right here in Genesis 30, 39. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, and the Hebrew word there for captain of the guard is Saris, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. An Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word "seris" is most often used for a eunuch, okay? Which of course is a man that's been that's been castrated. This was something they did uh, years ago. One of the they would have eunuchs that would serve under pharaohs and eunuchs that would serve under kings. The idea was if he was castrated, he couldn't produce children. He had no he had no reason to rebel against the king, and so that's the typical word now. It's very unlikely, though, that this Egyptian Potiphar was a eunuch because, as we'll find out in a few minutes, he's married. It would make no sense for a eunuch to to marry. So, more than likely, it, it's the term here is also used in the Old Testament for a court official or a military officer, and so that's more than likely what he what he was. In fact, that's why most English translations call it the captain of the guard. And so he might have been over the bodyguard force, kind of like head of the secret service would be uh, for the the president. Verse 2. So the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, this is a really cool verse and here's why. I I want you to notice that Joseph is a slave. Let me remind you of that. He is a slave in the house of his master, which means he is working, but he is earning no wages. Okay? He's not building up any wealth or anything like that. He's just a slave. Yet the Bible calls him what? Successful. He was a successful man. So if it's not money and it's not wealth that, that, that kind of makes the Bible refer to him as successful, what is it? Well, it tells us right there, in that verse, the Lord was with him. That's why he was successful, because the Lord was with him. It's not what he produces. It's not necessarily uh, money or wealth or anything like that. It's the fact that the Lord was with him. That's why it calls him uh, successful. So right off the bat in verse 2, we can see the definition of what it means, the scriptural definition of what it means to be a success, and that is if the Lord is with you. See, it's it's regardless of outside circumstances. The man is a slave, and yet the Lord is with him. And the Bible says, "Wow, he's successful." As we saw last a few weeks ago with Esau, Esau is building kingdoms and and producing kings from his lineage, and and yet that we get to the New Testament, and the Bible refers to him as a godless and immoral man. The, the, it doesn't see him as successful because the Lord was not so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, what the Bible's saying here is basically he, just what he said. He put everything in his charge. He, he had authority over everything. He bought and sold household items. He, he determined who worked here, who worked there, who did this. Basically, Potiphar, the only thing he worried about was whether he was going to have pork chops or T-bone for, for dinner. That's all he worried about. He just, that was the only thing, what am I going to have for dinner? That's all, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good deal right there when you only got to worry about what you're going to have for dinner. So Potiphar is wise enough, and, and I, we don't, now by the way, this is about a 13-year period from the time that Joseph arrives in Egypt to the time that he is, is uh, elevated to the, basically the vice presidency of Egypt. He is, eventually will be elevated to the second in command. It's about 13 years so this is not a, a short time frame. It's a fairly long time frame. But over this, evidently, wherever he put Joseph to work, he starts figuring out, wow, this, this kid has got some real abilities, and this kid is really blessed by God. And, and so he just kind of begins to move him up the ladder, eventually to the point where he's like this administrative assistant that just takes care of, of, of absolutely uh, everything. So he gives him full charge. He holds nothing back, okay? He handles the money. He handles the, the work assignments. He handles the buying and the selling. He handles absolutely everything. And Potiphar, as he said, only has to worry about what he's going to have for dinner. Verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now notice that she doesn't, this doesn't happen right off the bat. It says, after a time, she cast her eyes on him. Now, it's not that he got any better looking. It just took her a while to notice him. Well, why would that be? Well, he is a good-looking young man, but there's very little chance that she would have cared anything when he was just merely a slave. No matter how good-looking he was, if he's just a slave and he's working out in the field or he's sweeping the rooms, she doesn't care anything uh, about that. What causes her to notice him is his authority right you know she's up here and he's down here and he she doesn't pay any attention, but as he begins to rise in authority and he begins to have more and more authority, then she begins to take notice of him now there's a there's a good there's a warning here um, that I think is a is a note of warning for spiritual leaders now I want you to notice something she's up here, he's down here he's just a mere slave she she don't even know who he is right But all of a sudden, God begins to bless him, right? God's blessing him. God's blessing him. God's blessing him. I mean, he's successful. God is with him. And he begins to rise in authority. And all of a sudden, he gets to a certain point. And she says, wow, look at at that guy, right? You see, it is his faithfulness to God and his blessings from God that put him at the place of temptation. Right? Right? 1 Corinthians 10.12 says this, Let anyone who thinks he stands be careful. Right? Take heed lest you fall. Sometimes God is actually blessing us. And we see this, by the way, with I think with pastors and, and spiritual leaders around this country. God's blessing. God's growing their ministry. God's growing. But it actually it's that blessing of God that brings them to a point where they got to be very careful. So just because God is with you, Just because God's got his hand on you doesn't mean you've got this force field around you that makes you invincible. No, sometimes it's the very blessing of God that brings you to that place of of temptation and and where you can be vulnerable. So again, for a spiritual leader, that's a time to be very, very careful. Verse 8. But he refused. She says, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, behold. Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Now, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, a couple things about this temptation. The first thing that jumps out to me is how similar this is to Adam and Eve. And I, and I bring this up because we spent a lot of time back in the, the, the very beginnings of this study uh, in the Garden of Eden. Now, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have basic... God says, you can have everything in this garden, right? Except one... there's one exception. One lone exception, of course, being the fruit of, of that one tree. Joseph, in the same way, has access to anything in Potter's house. Anything with the exception, one exception, being his wife. The difference, of course, is while the fruit just hangs there for Adam and Eve, this fruit's chasing him all around the house, right? I mean, she's actively pursuing him, so his is even maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit tougher. Now, Joseph, the first thing he does, he tries to reason with her. If you go look at that, he said, look, i can 't do this thing let's let's let 's talk this out look your your husband has put me in charge of everything and he has made me at least his equal in this house, and he said i, I can 't do this he 's put his trust in me there 's only one thing he 's held back, and that 's you because you 're his wife we i can 't do this thing to possess you to do this thing would violate that trust, right? Furthermore, of course, any relationship would be adulterous. And that would be a sin against God. And so he's trying to reason with her. But let me tell you, she is not a reasonable woman. She, she's not interested in, in reasoning at all. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day. Okay? Day after day. This goes on. He would not listen to her. Now watch what it says here. To lie beside her or to be with her. Okay? Okay? Now she gets tricky here, right? And she does this day after day. It appears by that language in the Hebrew that sometimes she says, "Just lie beside me. We don't have to do anything. We just we just lay here beside me." Do y'all, do y'all see that? He would not listen to her to lie beside her. Just let's just lie down together. Let's just let us let, just be close. I you know we don't have to go anywhere, do anything. I, we just I just need that emotional. Connection. Now, of course, Joseph knows exactly where that is, is going to end. You see, in the end, she's got needs. She's got emotional needs. She's got physical needs, but they're not his business. That's the business of her husband to meet those needs, and he under, understands that, right? So he does the right thing, and he refuses. And by the way, he has to do this day after day after day, and that's going to be important in a little bit. Verse 11, But one day... When he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got out of the house. Now, up to this point, as far as we can tell, she's only spoken to him, right? She, lie with me, just, just lie down beside me, just day after day after day. But there's this one day when there's no other men in the house, and he comes in, and she sees an opportunity, and she boldly, Grabs him right now they, she's taking it to another level now at this point, I'm sure Joseph, day after day is still trying to reason with her, but at this point, the time of reasoning is is past, right it's not a time to say well let's let me just hold on, let me pray about this thing, right None of that, okay? The only godly course of action that he can do is run. Just get out of there as fast as you can possibly. Do and that's what he did. And 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 to get away from her, she's holding to him so tight that to get away from her, he literally has to shed his robe. He has to just leave it with her, and he just and he gets out of the of the house. Now, he does the right thing. Right? Is this the right thing to do? Is it the faithful thing to do? Faithful to God. He by the way, he's faithful to God. He's faithful to his boss, his employer, his master. He 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 doesn't break trust. He. He does everything right. But listen to me. Sometimes being faithful doesn't come with rewards. Sometimes being faithful to God doesn't come with accolades. Sometimes bad things can happen to faithful people. And and we have to understand that from the story of Joseph. Look at verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house. She called to the men of her household, and she said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Now, something in her, she finally realizes, I guess, that, I mean, there's nobody around. She grabs him, she, she touches him, right, and the man runs. So she finally realizes, okay, this, there's nothing ever going to come of this, right? I, it, finally, the light switch goes on. And that love or that lust turns to hatred. Okay? It just flips a switch. And she says, okay, I'll, I'll get him. It says this, He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and he cried out, he left his garment beside me, and he fled, and he got out of the house. So basically what she does is she accuses Joseph of trying to Raper and and by the way, if that wasn't enough, she actually plays on the racial bigotry of the Egyptians as, as we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but they absolutely detested Hebrews, they saw Hebrews as being beneath them, so not only does she say he tried to rape me, but she points out, oh yeah, remember he's a foreigner, he's a Hebrew, so she's playing up on this this racial uh, bigotry to make it even even worse now. It's curious to me, as you read this, there is no record of any response by these men. I mean, wouldn't you kind of expected the men to say, oh, well, let's get him, right? They don't do nothing, okay? Now, why? Well, personally, I doubt any of them believed her, okay? You you don't stay in a household like that month after month, year after year, and don't you see what's going on, right? I'm sure everybody saw that it was her pursuing him, not him, pursuing her. And in fact, in all of this time, they've been watching this this soap opera go on in the house. They had never seen him act inappropriately toward her. In fact, if, if they gossiped over dinner, if they gossiped while they were out in the field, the gossip wasn't about Joseph going after her. The gossip would have been about her going after Joseph. So I doubt very seriously that they were inclined to believe her. And so it just looks like they did absolutely nothing. Verse 16. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, or the, uh, the original Hebrew says to make sport of me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, a couple things. You 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 can't blame him, I guess. You know, his wife says this. He's kind of put in a pickle, right? So, I mean, if he don't believe her, he's got to live with her. So his anger is kind of kindled here. But a couple things. I want you to notice his punishment of Joseph is not near as bad as it could have been. I'm sure as captain of the guard, as a, as a military officer, he would have had the ability or the authority to execute prisoners. Okay? And, and a rape by a foreigner would certainly have been a crime worthy uh, of death. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he puts him into basically what's called a political prison. Okay, it's where the king's prisoners, those, that's, those are political uh, prisoners. Now, why would he do that? Well, we don't know, obviously, but it could indicate that he had some doubts, right? I mean, he had, you know, he's watched Joseph for all this time, and, the, and he's never done anything to break his trust. So he may have had some doubts and says, okay, I'm going to put him over here, and we'll just kind of see how this thing plays out. Even if he did fully believe his wife... Putting Joseph in this uh, political prison kind of gave him access to... By the way, his house has done what over the last few years? It has prospered. He's not inclined to get rid of Joseph. So whatever the case may be, he puts him into a political prison instead of execute him or or put it in in some kind of hard labor prison. By the way, the prison that's referred to is right there in the house. Okay. Verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 40, verses 2 and 3, we'll say this. We'll see this next week. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the cupbearer and the baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So he's put into this prison, which is right there in the house. Now, that may seem weird to us, but think about back in the Middle Ages where uh, a king would live in the castle, right? And there'd always be a what? There'd be a dungeon where they would keep their prisoners. It was right there in the castle or in the house. It's the same thing here. He had, a, he had a, a room, he had a basement, he had somewhere where those was where the political prisoners, but it was right there in the house. So he would have had ready access to Joseph. By the way, this also explains that when Joseph gets to the jail, the jailer just immediately seems to just say, hey, do you mind running the jail for me? Right? Because the jailer is right there in the house. He's known Joseph for years. He's seen Joseph. He knows what Joseph can do. He 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 so so once the once he gets to jail, he just says, Hey man, you want to run everything while you're while you're here? Right? Look at verse twenty-one. But the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him steadfast love, and he gave him favor inside of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there. He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, there are some really interesting things here. So what I'm calling this is we've watched... It's a very short chapter, only 23 verses. And in this chapter, we've watched... Uh, we, we've watched Joseph go from the penthouse, we'll, we'll call it the penthouse because it sounds better than house to prison, the penthouse to the prison, right? So I think there's, as I read through this, there's seven things that jump out to me, seven things that we can learn about this Joseph's move from the penthouse to the prison. Number one, God is with us in both places. God is with us in both places. By the way, this chapter goes out of its way to make this uh, point to you and I. Let me read verses 2 and 3 again, and I want you to pay special note of the language. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house, right? His master saw the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So he's in the penthouse, right? And he's successful. Everything he's doing is just just everything just, just is a success, right? Now, look at the last two verses. But the Lord was with Joseph, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's the exact same language. See, circumstances has changed. He's gone from the penthouse to the prison, but God being with him hasn't changed at all. And in fact, when when you compare those two, Uh, passages of scripture, you come to this unmistakable conclusion that God was with Joseph every bit as much in the prison as he was in the penthouse. Joseph hadn't done anything wrong. Sometimes circumstances change for other reasons. See, Joseph is successful. It doesn't matter whether he was in the house or whether he was in the prison. He's successful because God's hand was on him. And that is the biblical definition of, of true success. You see, if you've got God's blessing, listen, you got everything. No, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're in a in a, in a jail cell or, or, or living in a, a million-dollar mansion. If you've got God's hand on you, you've got everything. But the other thing is also true: if you lack God's blessing, If God's hand is not on you, then ultimately you have nothing no matter your circumstances. See, it's not the outside circumstances that dictate success in God's mind. It's whether his hand is is on you. The second thing that Joseph's journey from the penthouse to the prison teaches us is that righteous living does not always bring prosperity. Righteous living does not always bring prosperity. Don't forget. Don't forget. Why was Joseph, when he was in the house, why was he being rewarded with authority and all? and Because he was faithful to God. Why was he in the prison? Because he was faithful to God. Okay, Righteous living does not always bring an easy road. Righteous living is not always these pedal-strong pathways that you just saunter down and nothing's ever... No. See, in fact, righteous living can actually bring the opposite. Now, remember this, a couple things about this. Remember who were the very first people to read this story. Moses penned this as as the Israelites were getting ready to go into the Promised Land. And they would have been the very first ones who would have read this. And remember, they've just come out of hundreds of years of slavery, sometimes uh, very hard slavery to very cruel taskmasters. And, and they were slaves through no fault of their own. They hadn't done anything wrong to be slaves. But yet, they read the story. So when they read the story, they can say, well, that's just like us. Right? That, I, I, can, I can empathize with that. I, I, can, I can see that. That sometimes it's not just what we do. Sometimes God just has other plans, but that he's still with us. The third thing that Joseph's journey from the penthouse to the prison teaches us is that God uses adversity to prepare His people for the future. God uses adversity to prepare His people for the future. Joseph is sold into slavery to Potiphar, and he's thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit. Yet, we know clearly in Scripture that these years of adversity were designed by God both for Joseph's good and for the good of his family, right? So let me... Let me stop here and ask you a question. Let's say that you were in charge of Joseph's future, okay? And you're there in Dothan. Everybody remember back in Dothan when he went to see his brothers and and he's on his way up to Dothan and you're, you're walking with him. And you know, you know that in 13 years, Joseph is going to be the vice president of Egypt. Now, today he's just a shepherd boy, right? But in 13 years, you know he is going to be the vice president of Egypt. How would you prepare him? How would you get him ready for that role? Keep in mind, he's got to learn the Egyptian language. He's got to learn the Egyptian culture. He's got to learn how the politics of of Egypt work. By the way, there is no Harvard of Egypt that you can send him to. There's no language school in Egypt. They're not going to let a Hebrew in anyway. How does Joseph gain all this stuff that he needs to be vice president... How do you do it? Well, see, it turns out the only way you could have done it is to put him in slavery and put him in prison. See, all the stuff God is doing is getting him ready to be the vice president. See, God knew exactly what he was doing. Now, while Joseph's in it, he doesn't know what's coming, does he? He doesn't know, hey, man, in a few years I'm going to be the VP. He doesn't know that. But all the time, God is getting him ready. God is using adversity to prepare him to be second in command so so in God's plan in the providence of God, this is a time of preparation and it's no accident Psalms 105 seventeen says this and he God sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave. this is all God's doing everything that's happening to him is all god's doing it's all in the providence of, of God. the fourth thing that I think this can teach us, this journey from the penthouse to prison, is sometimes God answers prayers differently than we think He should, than we expect. If you, if you don't know this as a Christian, just this story, let me tell you, Joseph is a godly man, and because he's a godly man, I think he's a praying man. And let me tell you, day after day after day, that woman is chasing him. What do you think he's asking God? What do you think he's asking God? God, you've got to help me here. I've tried reason, this woman. I've tried. Uh, I, I, I could, I've tried everything I know to do. She just won't listen. She just keeps coming and coming and coming. God, you gotta, you gotta help me here, right? Even Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this: "Lead us not into temptation." Even we are to pray that. Don't lead me into temptation. So, so he's saying, God, you gotta help me here. Get me out of this. See, he needs God to somehow protect him from that woman, so God says, okay, here, go to prison. See, in some ways, it, 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 that's exactly what the prison bars did. She couldn't get to him there. That situation was over. God answered his prayer, but he did it in a way he probably would have never expected in, in a million years. But that's the kind of thing that God, uh, God does. You know, one of the things that amazes me about God is how he can be doing all these same things at the same time, Right? He's preparing you to be the vice president. He's protecting you from this woman. He's, he's, just, he's blessing you. He's got his hand on you. And you got, you're got you just like, what's going on here, right? But God's in complete control the whole time. Those very same bars and chains that protected him from her, those very same bars and chains that held other people down, in no way hindered God, God's plan for him. And, and I think just that's a great lesson for us, how frequently our answered prayers come wrapped in a package that we never ever would have uh, expected. There's people in this room, and I know you, there's people in this room that that you want to get closer to God and he brought cancer. You want to get closer to God and he brought a stroke. You want to get closer to God and he brought are, are you with me? I, mean, I would have never no I would never prayed that way. But yet, God, you look back now and you think, Wow, well, man, this God is amazing, right? I wouldn't change that for anything with what I've got today. The fifth thing that this lesson teaches us, this, this Joseph's journey from, uh, from uh, the penthouse to prison teaches us is once again just the providence of God. It's just all over this latter half of the book of Genesis. Joseph's in prison, and he's going to end up meeting a man in prison who will eventually introduce him to pharaoh and then introduce that introduction to pharaoh will eventually take him to the second in command the vice president of the entire i mean a job interview in prison who who comes up with this kind of stuff god does let me tell you with god nothing is an accident if you are a believer there is no chance encounters in this life there are no chance encounters in this life God is in charge of every aspect, every detail. His providence is always working. Remember that, and it changes everything. If you can live with that perspective, it changes everything in your life. And we see that with with Joseph. Number six, the sixth thing that this uh, journey from uh, 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 penthouse to prison teaches us is the necessity of suffering and the necessity of adversity. When I say the necessity, the need, the requirement to suffer, the requirement to go through adversity, I'm not just taking it from this story. It's all over the Bible. Suffering for you and I, adversity, trials, temptations, those kind of things for you and I as Christians should be a normal part of our life. Life. It's what we should expect from righteous living, not some penthouse in peace and prosperity. And it's all over the Scripture. Let me give you a few of these. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus... Also may be manifested in our body Philippians one twenty nine for to you it has been granted for christ 's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake first Thessalonians three four for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass as you know first Peter four twelve through six and beloved do not be surprised I, Peter says don 't be. Surprise when this thing happens to you. Don't, don't this fiery ordeal, this sickness, this persecution, this, this financial thing that's going on, don't be surprised at all of that. It comes upon you for your testing as though some strange things were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. Real quickly, the Bible just tells us this. Jesus said it, didn't he? In this world, you will have tribulation. If they hate me, they'll hate you. He just, the Bible says it over and over and over again. Let me give you three reasons for it. Just very quickly, I don't really think that's the focus of it. but I'm going to give you three reasons uh, that we suffer, that we go through adversity. They are ministry, discipline, and endurance. And these are all backed up by Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1.4, he says this, Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. Sometimes God allows us to go through things because he knows that out there in the future, you need to minister to somebody else. That's what Paul is talking about here. Sometimes you go through things to prepare you down the road to minister to somebody else who's going through the exact same thing. See, when you think, when you understand this and you know there's reasons behind what God is doing, it changes everything. It changes everything about what you have to go through. The second thing, sometimes God does it for our discipline. Hebrews twelve nine through 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. There's something about adversity that just brings you closer to God. And we've all been there. There's not a person in this room. There's something about adversity that just makes you realize, you know what, I really got no control of this at all. You're the only one that's got control. And it draws us to him, and a lot of that, that dross and that other stuff fades away, and holiness begins to grow being more like Jesus begins to grow in our life. The third thing, of course, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is endurance. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, my brothers and sisters. Again, he's not talking to the world. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And Jesus says those that endure to the end will be saved. We said that a couple weeks ago. Didn't you want to be saved? Yes. Then you need to endure. Do you want to endure? Yes. What produces endurance? Suffering, adversity, trials. Okay? Those are three of the reasons that we go through it. The seventh thing this teaches us, and I didn't want to leave this out, but I think many, many, many sermons and, and lessons have been taught on temptation Um, From this chapter, so I want to hit it very quickly. It does teach us something about facing temptation, and this is what it teaches me. When you and I think about temptation, we tend to think of it as a one-time event. If I ask you, tell me about the temptation of Joseph. We think about Potiphar's wife, don't we? We think about her grabbing him, and but we don't think about the day by day by day by day that went on all the way up to that. And see, I think that's how we tend to think of temptation is this one moment in time, I'm tempted. Am I either going to pass or I'm going I'm to fail? But let me tell you, that is a mistake. Don't, don't think of it that way. Because when you think of it that way, you tend to overlook the need for holiness day by day by day by day by day. Let me, let's look at Joseph as an example. As a slave he is elevated to this authority where he has has basically authority over everything. Every day he had to have been tempted. You could just take a little bit here. Just take a little bit there. A a utensil, a a pot, some some money, some food, some clothes to make your life better, right? He's tempted every day in these little things. Take a little bit of Potiphar's money. Take a little bit of Potiphar's uh, clothes. Take a little bit of pot. Everybody with me? Day after day after day, he's tempted in that, right? So what he's doing day by day is he's practicing honesty in the small things, in the little things. He's, being, he's showing integrity. He's, 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 he's validating Potiphar's trust. So one day he comes to the point where he's presented with Potiphar's wife, right? It's much easier for him to say no because he's been practicing that every day. Are you with me? You see, when we practice resisting temptation in the small things, it's much easier for us to, to push back or to, to not give in when we're presented with the, with the big things. So how we handle the small things is often going to determine how we're going to handle the big things when they, when they come to us. By the way, and I think this is all God. God, you know, God's working all this out. Again, He's just doing all these different things with Joseph all at the, at the same time. He put him in a position where he could re- resist temptation every day so when the time comes with the really big one, he's able to run, get out of there and say, I will not sin against uh, God. Next week, we turn uh, and continue with the story of Joseph in prison in Genesis chapter 40, and I hope you guys can be with us. Let's pray. Father.